A word that comes up almost constantly, an idea, a concept that comes up almost constantly in so much of what I read and so much of what I pay attention to, yet it's an idea that I don't think about at all. It's a word that I don't even let register in my head at all, but yet it's always there in so much of what I'm focused on. It's karma. I never think in terms of karma. I never even say the word karma. I mean, maybe if you were to go through every episode of this show, you'd find some examples and prove me wrong. And I would love it if someone cared that much. But, um, you know, it's a word that I never even think of. I mean, that's a little bit of a lie. I do think of it sometimes, and obviously I'm thinking of it right now. But it's it's not something that really registers. And I don't mind when people talk about it. I don't mind taking it in. Obviously, it wouldn't be such a common subject in so much of what I pay attention to if I just hated it. I hate the idea of karma. You know what idea, idea I really don't like? The idea of karma. But it's something that I just don't think about. Yet this recent experience, what I've been going through, has had me thinking more about the idea, especially the karmic cycle, because that's an aspect that I never think about. I do think about casual karma a little bit, even if I don't put it in those words. It's something that isn't just reserved for the word karma. I mean, there's a lot of different there's there's a lot of different things that people say that are equivalent to casual karma. Even just, you know, giving is the greatest gift of all. Give and you shall receive. There are all kinds of belief systems, all kinds of philosophies that basically echo the same kind of casual karma. You know, because at its core, it's just altruism. And that might not be true for these karmic cycles, for this, you know, deeper, you know, I, I don't even know what to call it, but the idea of, you know, what happens to your soul and reincarnation. And I don't think about reincarnation either. Very rarely do I think of reincarnation. Reincarma. Reincarma. Oh, is that is that one of them reincarma things? Uh, it's. It, I don't think about either of those things very much because I don't know how to. I don't know how to think about reincarnation and karma. I do like some of the ideas. I do like some of what it suggests or brings to mind, the idea of returning to the earth in different forms the idea of your actions in one life affecting your life later. But when you get into the karmic cycles, and especially breaking the karmic cycle and no longer being reborn, almost like a groundhog day, you finally figured out the code. You finally did everything right. Because that's you know basically what groundhog day is. You know, he finally figures out the right pattern to follow in order to no longer live the same day over and over again. And I'm sure that was an an entirely intentional undercurrent when they made that movie. You know, these Hollywood types and their their casual <laughs> their casual uh approach to reincarnation, but it's probably true. I have to imagine Groundhog Day was made with that concept in mind. Uh, but again, it's not a concept that's reserved for words like reincarnation or karma or karmic cycles. I think it's something that a lot of different people have thought about in a lot of different ways. And I think one of the reasons why I avoid the word karma and I don't think of it, and I don't even want to say I avoid it, it just doesn't really register. It just doesn't really, I don't really, I hear it, I don't really think I can do something with that thought. 
and part of that might be because it's used so casually. And in my lifetime, in my 34 years, the word karma is just this basic casual term you hear all the time everywhere. That's kind of how it should be. You know, I, I, I'm not opposed to that. I like that. I, like, I feel like karma should be very casual. It should be treated very, very casually. And you can really spin your wheels thinking about it, too, about, like, what's a truly a good action? What's, what's, what does it truly mean to do good? You can play these little moral games where you try to decide, you know, like, you know, well, you know, if you're doing it because you think you're going to get something out of it, are your intentions truly good? And if your intentions aren't good, does that mean that your action is truly good? If you're giving someone a gift because you think you're going to get something later, is that truly a good thing? You know, it's, it's very easy to spin your wheels on those sorts of questions. And I think that's one of the reasons why I avoid it, because I spin my wheels on so much already that I don't need to spin my wheels on questions like, what is truly good? Because I feel like it's pretty clear. What is truly good? Well, let's talk again about what is truly true. The truly true truth. And as I mentioned a couple episodes ago, turn signals are a great example of that. Using your turn signal to let people know that you're changing lanes, that is truly good. And I can't imagine an argument that suggests otherwise. The only argument I could imagine against that is the idea that, well, don't use your turn signal because it forces people to pay more attention. Because if they don't know what you're going to do, that means they have to be in better control of themselves. But in my opinion, if you're truly in control of yourself when you're driving, you're going to use your turn signal. So there's kind of a catch-22. There's kind of a dilemma even to that. So to me, just a truly good truth is using your turn signal to let other people know you're changing lanes. And it'd be really nice if other people did the same for you, but you don't necessarily have that expectation. You should do it because it's the right thing to do when you're behind a steering wheel. And yeah, in an ideal world, you signal, they signal. It's a cycle of signals. I don't know about karmic cycles, but I know that a cycle of turn signals where you're signaling, they're signaling... You're signaling to them, they're signaling to you. It's wonderful. That's what I want. <laughs> and uh, But there is this thing that happens. It's a good karmic system right there. To me, that is a good karmic system. Casual karma, the things you do on the road. That dangerous fucking place. That barbaric, dangerous place, the road. Uh, and a bad karmic system would be the person in front of you doesn't use their turn signal, you get mad, and it doesn't make you want to use your turn signal more. Instead, it, it you feel like it gives you permission to then, you know, create this cycle of, of abuse, you know, because that's sort of what a bad karmic system is. It's kind of like the cycle of abuse where it's like they did something to me or they didn't do something that they should have done that would have been good for me. They hurt me. They didn't use the turn signal, and they hurt me. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hurt the person behind me. I'm going to weave through the highway, never using my signal. I'm going to weave through that highway with no blinker, because that's what was done to me. 
Back when I was uh, 15 years old, I had my learner's permit, and they took me on the highway for the first time. They said, well, let's get on the highway. Let's, let's, let's show you what it's all about. Let's show you what this whole system's all about, kid. You got your learner's permit. We're taking you on the highway. And I, I was trying to merge on the highway, and nobody would let me merge. And then I learned, you know, that uh, everyone's out for themselves. And now I never let anybody else merge. I learned that if you ain't going to let me merge, I ain't going to let them merge. And now we live in a world of just gridlock traffic when nobody's letting anybody merge and nobody's signaling. And I feel like shit all the time. And I never got my license, but I drive anyway. My learner's permit expired and I decided, you know, if I'm not going to use my turn signal, why do I even need to get a driver's license? Why do I even need to have car insurance? I can just weave through traffic with no driver's license. With uh, I don't need to update my tabs. You know, that's the sort of system it creates, though. You know, it sounds like a, a, it's fun. It's fun to say that. But just talking about it, I'm like, that's real. That happens. Somebody didn't let me merge. When I was learning how to drive, somebody didn't use their turn signal, and I saw that that's possible, and they hurt me. And now I know that I don't have to use my signal. I saw somebody run a red light, so I decided that I was going to run a red light the next time I had the opportunity. Some people think that way, and that's a great example of a bad karmic system. It's casual, it's practical, but to me, that's what karma is. And that's probably why I don't think about it with words like karma, because to me, it's just doing the right thing. To me, it's just doing good. And there's no reason to spin my wheels. And I didn't even plan for, you know, the, the spinning my wheels metaphor to be so relevant here. But everything we're talking about is, is driving. You know, I don't think about karma. I think about driving all the time, apparently. <laughs> As a guy who's, who's never been a car guy, as someone who would never, I don't know the first thing about cars, it's amazing how, how much of the world I view purely in terms of like cars and highways. Um, spinning my wheels on turn signals. But uh, yeah, that, that is a great example. I mean, I feel like that's the best illustration I can give of what karma means to me. And, you know, why I don't really think in terms of anything deeper when it comes to karma or why I don't really think about intention or good or what's truly good. Because, like, it doesn't matter what your intention is if you use your turn signal when you're changing lanes. You might be doing it out of spite, but what's the end result? If you're, if you're turning your turn signal on because you just want to feel really good... Like if you're like, oh, if you're turning, if you're, if you're using your turn signal purely out of ego, if you're like, oh, you know, I'm such a good person, I'm using my turn signal, the end result doesn't even, it doesn't change the end result. You're still using your turn signal. You're still doing a good thing. So, I, you know, I don't believe in spinning your wheels too much. I mean, you should really consider, like, if you're going out of your way to do something, you should ask yourself questions like, uh, you know, does this person really want my help? Is what I'm doing truly helpful? But those are personal things. There's things that you can just do as you go about your day and you live your life that are basically good. They're truly good. They're basically truly good, you know, and, and they're pretty obvious. And they're things that everybody will tell you. Everybody who has a decent head on your shoulders agrees on these things.
Well, what does it mean to have a decent head on your shoulders? Um, well, it means, you know, nobody's chopped your head off yet. <laughs> That's what it means to have a good head on your shoulders. Uh, nobody's tried to behead you partially or fully or, you know, you, you've stayed away from the guillotine. If you have a good head on your shoulders, at the very least, it means you've stayed away from the guillotine. Finally, a, a metaphor that doesn't involve driving. Uh, but, uh, yeah, this, it, I think that's just a, an easy way to understand it. But speaking of driving, you know, there's also the thing people do in, in running red lights where there's this interesting phenomenon I've seen where it's one thing that people run red lights. It's pretty easy to understand what people are doing. They either think, like, I'm so close, I, don't, I just don't want to stop. I want to get where I'm going. Uh, but I've noticed that people piggyback on red light runnings or, or you know when someone runs a red light i've noticed that a lot of times there's a person who piggybacks behind the person who's running the red light so two cars will run that red light it's like the person behind them is like i'm just gonna sneak in behind this this front guy and i'm not gonna say i respect people who run red lights because i don't i understand sometimes it can happen kind of kind of accidentally I don't want to say it's ever truly accidental because I, I feel like you can always control whether or not you run a red light. But there are times when you cut it fairly close or you're trying to sneak through the yellow and you uh, do end up running a red light. I've certainly done it. Uh, but there's those people who piggyback behind the person who's running the red light. And what that reminds me of is a bully and the bully's henchman. The bully's sidekick, the parrot of the bully, where there's the bully who, you know, they exist. I'm not going to say bullying is good. I'm not going to, you know, say that bully, you know, bullies are great people. But at the same time, they exist in the same way that people run red lights. And sometimes people don't even realize they're being a bully. That's the thing about just the mass confusion that is childhood is sometimes you don't even realize that you've fallen into the role of a bully because you're just, sometimes you might make a joke and you don't realize that it's cruel. And, you know, sometimes like the currency of the playground just becomes cruel, cruelty and you become a bully. And, and so it's one thing to be a bully. And like I said, I'm not going to justify bullying. I mean, I think there is something to be said for kids kind of being tough on each other. And I don't think we should completely discourage that. We should discourage cruelty and, and constant humiliation. But I think there's something, there's a function to kids giving each other a hard time that we shouldn't completely discourage. We should be conscious of it. We should be conscious of what's going on. But, you know, bullying does serve a function. And, and in that way, too, it's like, if not for a, you know, a bully provides an obstacle for somebody to overcome. And while a bully can easily become a very cruel and humiliating, you know, wall that some kid can never get past and just makes them not want to come to school or even live, you know, we hear about that. We hear about kids who want to kill themselves or do kill themselves in some cases because of a bully or because of constant bullying. You know, it's like there is a function sometimes to a bully. And there's a reason why, you know, so many old stories involve that. There's a reason why every story has a bad guy who is a bully. There's a reason why that's such a common archetype. You know, it's not just the kid on the playground uh, who himself probably was bullied or who has a bullying parent. 
I mean, there was a Berenstain's, Berenstain's, a Berenstain's Bears book that I read when I was a kid, and it was like this little girl who's a bully to the to the little girl in the Baron, the perfect little Berenstain family. You know, they're 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 a perfect family. Maybe I don't I don't remember. Um, but there's a little girl who bullies their little girl, and you know, you you really start to not like this girl. You're reading this book <laughs> about these little uh, anthropomorphic bears, and you're like, I don't, I don't like this little girl because she's a bully. And then you find out at the end that she's abused at home. Like she talks about, like how I think she gets in trouble at school or something, maybe for the bullying. And she says something to the other little girl, and she's like, Oh, you know, my parents, when they find out about this, I'm not going to be able to sit down for a week. And that was an early lesson for me in that sort of story where it's like, oh, it's the cycle of abuse. It's it's a bad karmic system. It's like the, the little girl at school, it's like she's from an abusive household, so she abuses her classmate. Uh, but bullies, they are the, they do beyond just being these like characters you think you don't like until you find out like what made them a bully. And, you know, it's a deeper, you know, it's much deeper than them just being bad. Um, they are this archetype and every bad guy in every story is basically a bully. Otherwise they wouldn't be the bad guy. Captain Hook is a bully, you know, uh, Cobra Commander is a bully. The Joker is a bully, I guess. I feel like now with these new Joker, this new Joker movie, I was about to say movies, there probably will be multiple movies. Uh, Cruella DeVille, she's a bully. You know, they're all bullies. They're all bully stories. But, you know, bullies do provide an obstacle that people can overcome. But anyway, the the reason I brought up bullying is because, you know, bullies have this sidekick, which is another real thing. Bullies really do have sidekicks. And uh, that's, not, that's not fiction. Bullies have sidekicks. And they piggyback on the bully because the bully's the bully. The bully's the bully. Uh... And the sidekick, though, is someone who's generally weaker, and they enjoy the the malice. They enjoy they enjoy the cruelty, and they enjoy watching and participating in this humiliation. But they would never initiate it themselves, and so they piggyback on the bully. And that's I don't know. The only reason I brought this up is because it reminds me of people who run red lights and this thing that I notice where a lot of times somebody will piggyback on that and they'll be right behind that person who's running the red light and those people actually bother me more the person who piggybacks behind the person who's running the red light bothers me bothers me more and it's it's not because i like the person who's running the red light but i do have some like begrudging respect for the balls that it takes to do that you're putting your own life at risk you're putting other people's lives at risk and so it's this really ballsy move where it's like nothing's gonna stop me Nothing's going to stop me. I don't have to follow the rules. And uh, while I don't truly respect that, truly, 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 it's not truly true respect that I feel for for that person because they're assholes. Uh, I do, you know, there is a part of me that's kind of like, wow, like it does take something to to be that person and do that and hit the gas when you're not supposed to. But that person who sneaks in behind them, that's always worse. That person who they they don't have the uh, they're not taking the initiative they're just sneaking in behind. Um, but this, I'm getting really far away from this idea of karma and karmic cycles, and I do want to cycle back to that. 
And uh, I think one of the reasons I've been thinking about it more deeply lately, and, and not super deeply, but more than usual, to the point where I'm actually thinking about the word karma and, and the way that karmic cycles are explained, and not so much reincarnation, but, you know, it all fits together, it all, it all, all these subjects, you know, go hand in hand, and uh, a lot of it's because of my mom's passing, I mean, all of it is really, and... Something she used to say, because she was a believer in some form of reincarnation. You know, what I appreciated about her is she was not convinced of any specific belief. Like, she she was very agnostic in her beliefs, but she veered on the side of believing. Like, she had a certain level of faith, a pretty high level of faith in something, but she didn't try to define it herself. But she did have some experiences throughout her life that made her feel that she had been reincarnated. And some I won't go into detail here. I think I may have actually talked about one before where she... I will go into a little bit of detail. Where she had a... a she was in England, and she loved England. Had some English heritage. And it was when she was younger. And she, I believe it was when she was a stewardess. And... She was somewhere, I, I can't remember if it was, uh, I can't remember exactly where it was. It was some historic place, but she she walked into a room and she just had this vision of herself as like a washerwoman on the ground in that room. And it was like a split second thing where she saw herself as this washerwoman and it was... I don't want to call it a hallucination. I think just calling it a vision is fine. And she's not somebody who walked around seeing things everywhere. So she's not somebody who had a reason to invent these sorts of things. Um, she was very casual. I mean, that's a good word to use. She was very casual in her attitude about these sorts of things. And But she did have this vision of herself as a, a washerwoman, kind of like cleaning the floor, doing something in this room. And... It was a profound experience for her that she mentioned numerous times throughout my life. And she did feel like that had been a past life of hers. And she didn't try to she didn't try to prescribe too much meaning to it. Uh I don't ever remember her analyzing it or or, you know, trying to like hold on to it. It was just an experience she had and it had an impact on her and it fueled some sort of belief in reincarnation. And something she used to say to me was, you know, she believed souls travel in packs. And I may have discussed this on here. And one way that that resonated with me personally is I've met people in life, women in particular, who I had some sort of romantic involvement with. And I've met them and thought, you know, oh, it's you. It's only happened a couple of times. It's not like every woman I've ever met, every woman woman I've ever been involved with, I had this sense of like, oh, we're back on the carousel again in this lifetime. <laughs> That's how you hit on new age people. Uh, oh, it's you again. No, and it was something I didn't even really verbalize that I remember to them, but a couple of times it's happened and both for positive and negative, I've had this sense of, oh. And it's it's a strange feeling to have that. It's a very strange feeling where it didn't feel like the... Even though it was the first time I had met this person in my life, I've had that experience of like, oh. 
And I've had that with friends too. I think there's something else to be. There's, it's it's different though if it's like there's a romantic element to it, and it it's not some love at first sight thing or anything like that. It's this it's this sudden recognition of each other. That's how I would describe it. And because of that experience, having had that, you know, just a couple times maybe, it made me really give some thought toward the idea of souls traveling in packs. And there are certain people, too, who just because... You end up feeling like they're in your life for a reason, and you feel that early on, and it happens with certain friends, where, you know, you do have the experience growing up where you love people who are great friends of yours, and then next year you're in a different class, like in elementary school. Like, in third grade, you're best friends because you have the same teacher. The next year, you both have a different teacher, and you don't really hang out anymore. And then you graduate high school, and there's friends that you're never going to hang out with again. And you loved them. You cared about them. But then there are certain people that kind of cycle back in. And it's times like this in my life when I'm really aware of that, where I'm like, oh, there were times when this friend frustrated me. Or this, this person, I wasn't really getting much out of this friendship, or whatever it was. And then you'll have these moments like this where you're just so conscious of everything and you're, everything is so lit up. And you're just like, wow, it makes a lot of sense right now why this person has stayed along. Or if they were out of my life for a while, why they cycled back. And that's similar to the idea of that sudden recognition that you have when, say, you meet somebody and you're like, oh, it's you. And you don't even know who that person is in that moment. It's just this sudden recognition of something that doesn't feel new and yet you're meeting them for the first time. And it's different than like that thing where you sit down with somebody and you just like become fast friends, you have so much to talk about. It's different than that because it's nonverbal. And so like that idea that my mom shared with me of like believing that souls travel in packs, it always resonated with me on that level. But it also, it resonates with me right now too because my relationship with my mom was such that I don't believe this was the first round that our our souls have been through, or our spirits, or anything, and I, it's all this stuff is indefinable to me. All these words are placeholder words. Karma is a placeholder word. I think the reason why I don't think about the word karma much is because to me it's yet another placeholder word. All of our words, of course, are are placeholders. You know, that's why every language has a different word for things and all that. All of our language is a placeholder for something else, but. Uh, when you get into these deeper ideas, these immaterial ideas, um, or, or ideas that at the very least they transcend our normal understanding of material existence, you know, you really start to feel like, oh, these are just placeholder words. And uh, so whatever it is, soul, spirit, all of that, it's something that I believe in and have believed in, some sort of intangible force. And, but yet it is tangible because we're aware of it. I mean, I'm going to try not to spin my wheels right here and just be like, well, it, it is tangible. It's intangible. It's a intangible. It's a tangible intangibility. It, intangible. It's like uh, what Donald Rumsfeld said about um, there are known unknowns and there are unknown knowns. But what you have to worry about are the unknown unknowns, the things that you don't even know that you don't know. (laughs) 
Uh, Donald Rumsfeld had a very profound statement. Um, the unknown unknowns. Um, but these things like soul and spirit, you know, they're intangible in the sense that we can't measure them. But they are things that everyone talks about. A lot of people talk about them. Even people who don't believe in those things talk about those things. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it's almost like it, the sort of people who don't believe in spirits and souls are a lot like, you know, recovering alcoholics who only talk about booze or only talk about not drinking, which I've gone through phases of. You know, I'm, I'm sometimes one of those people. Sometimes I'm a person who quit drinking, who talks a bunch about drinking. Uh, but that's kind of how I feel when, that's kind of how I feel about atheism, for one. Uh, I feel that, you know, a lot of times atheism becomes, you know, so focused on discussing the absence of this thing that they reinforce the very existence of that thing and they become tied to it more than they ever would if they just believed in it, <laughs> you know? Uh and uh, so, so the idea of like a soul or a spirit or all of that, um, I feel that I have one. I mean, what better evidence of it for me is there than that? The fact that I feel that I have one and for better and worse, because I went through a period some years back, what people might call the dark night of the soul. And that could always come back hopefully in smaller and smaller ways. But I went through a period where I just remember feeling like something is twisted up. I'm not doing well. And I'm functioning. And I'm not depressed. I'm not diagnosable. Because I think that was the problem, too, is feeling like I'm not diagnosable right now. I don't know what diagnosis they would give me because I'm not depressed. I'm not, I'm not, my symptoms aren't that of depression. And I mean, I could role play that I'm a depressed person and therefore role play that I'm recovering from a depression and maybe that would help me. Uh, you know, I could pretend to be a depressed person so that I can pretend to be somebody who's fighting off depression and therefore succeeds in fighting off this thing that I was pretending to have just so that I would have something to fight off. I could do that. I could go through that game. Uh, but I didn't want to do that, and but I knew something was off. I knew something was wrong, and it. I felt it on a soul level, and I did an art series at that time. It was actually when I was really getting inspired to draw all the time, because when I was younger, I didn't draw all the time. Like when I was a little kid, I would draw a lot just because that's what you do. You're just kind of like figuring shit out. Little even kids who don't become artists draw all the time. They doodle. And so when I was a little kid, I did. But then when I got older, I would just very selectively draw. And it was always important, and it was always, you know, an important part of me. But I didn't do it. But around this time that things were starting to go bad, where I was just starting to feel something was twisted up, I, you know, started to do this art series, and it was very dark in nature. Uh, it wasn't, like, gory. It wasn't violent. But there was a darkness to it, an undeniable darkness to the subject matter. And it was, uh, I ended up titling that, it was kind of, I didn't think of it as an, a particular series, but I ended up titling, while I was doing it, I titled this entire, let's just call it an episode, let's call it a collection, I don't know what you'd call it, a phase. I called it Soul in Crisis, because that's what I realized. I was like, my soul is in crisis right now, and I feel like I have to make a decision to get out of this, to avert this crisis. And, and right then, I didn't know exactly how to do that. I didn't know at all how to do it. 
And there were a lot of things playing a role in that crisis, um, both behaviors, but other things too that I couldn't quite put a finger on. And I did feel that that thing that was twisted up, that thing that I couldn't quite define, was very much what some people would call your soul or your spirit. And so when I titled it Soul in Crisis, it wasn't just something I was throwing out there. And at any other time in my life before that, if I had seen like some collection of art that somebody did that was titled Soul in Crisis, I would be like, wow, that's hollow. That, they couldn't poss- that couldn't possibly be sincere. Soul in Crisis, okay. Uh, but I felt it. That's what I felt. And uh, since then, you know, it's been a process of untwisting that, of untwisting my soul. And uh, it's probably something you, because you can twist your, you can try to untwist your soul so far that you end up twisting it in another direction, you know. Um, But long story short, I do believe in soul, and I have had both positive and negative experiences where I feel like I'm very much in touch with that soul or very aware of it. And so it's not just a thing where, oh, soul is only when I'm feeling good. Soul is only when I, you know, I've been meditating every day and I've been, you know, um, repeating positive affirmations to myself. Soul is only when I'm feeling good. No, I, I know what it feels like when your soul is really twisted up and in a very bad, dark place. And I also know what it feels like when it's just, when it's lit up and it's clear. And more importantly... I feel that I know what what having a soul feels like when it's just there, which might be just the purest form of it, you know, when it's not good or bad, when, you, when you're not feeling like a sensation in your soul, but you just know it's there. That might just be truly what it is. Um, and uh, so anyway, my mom's idea of like souls traveling in packs, I already believed in soul, I already believe in spirits. And I wouldn't try to tell you exactly what they are, because I don't know. Um, if I knew, I'd be uh, selling you something. No. <laughs> uh, if I knew, if I could tell you exactly what a soul was, you'd be paying for this. You'd be putting money in my pocket just to hear this. Um, but uh, so the idea of souls traveling in pack resonated with me, and with my mom passing, I have thought about you know. Where is her soul in all this? Where is her spirit? And I felt it immediately. I felt some sensation that I connected to to the idea of her and her presence within me, her light. And I felt it especially, I felt it very strongly the week she died. I felt like I was just, I, I felt like I was floating through the air and it wasn't all good, you know, it wasn't, it, it, there was a lot to it that was very, very difficult, and and was, you know, there was a lot of grief, but I still felt like I was floating in a weird way, and a part of that was because I, I felt some presence of her, and it wasn't the memory of her, it wasn't her things, it was a, a, a sensation inside of me, and... Since then, it's not quite the same as it was that first week, and I started to do a little more thinking about the idea of her soul and what what happens to her soul. You know, I know there's the Buddhist, you know, forty nine days, some, you know, after your after someone passes away is is when their soul departs, or you know, when their soul no longer roams the earth and it goes on to its next phase. There's that idea. 
And in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, they they mention the 49th day, but they also mention that it could happen in a week. It could happen in two weeks. And there's a part of me that in all of this, while I don't really think too much about the idea of karmic cycles and rebirth and you know, breaking that cycle. And I I don't put much importance or emphasis on that in my own beliefs. There's this part of me that has had this feeling and it really hit me hard today where I feel like my mom might have broken some cycle. And I would love the idea of, because I don't feel like this was my mom, I don't feel like this was our first round on this earth. I don't feel like this is our first time, you know, being close. I don't feel like, and, and I, I, I do feel like in being as close as we were throughout my life, the fact that I never strayed that far from her, you know, I didn't go to the other side of the world. I've, you know, always lived in the same town as she has. And in the last year I've been living with her and I, I feel like all of that was very intentional because I, when I moved back in with my mom about a year ago, I kind of had this feeling like it wasn't going to last forever, yet I wasn't planning on, I didn't have any plans to leave either. And my independence is very important to me, and there was a part of me that was very, uh, I felt no shame, but I felt very self-conscious of the fact that at 33 years old, I was living with my mom. And... You know, obviously I'd lived on my own for many years before that, and it's not like I'm somebody who never left home or anything like that, but I was still very self-conscious of the fact that uh, even in the days leading up to her inf- getting in- the infection and everything, I it, it crossed my mind where I was like, what am I going to do? What's my plan? Am I going to live with my mom forever? You know, I moved back in a year ago. Am I going to live here forever? But I kind of had this feeling like that wasn't going to be the case, yet I knew that Yet I knew that I didn't have plans to to leave either. So it it was a weird thing. It was a weird feeling. And then this happened, which, you know, was very much, it fits, it's very much in line with that feeling I had where I'm like, you know, I'm not planning on going anywhere, but I also feel like this isn't going to last forever. And of course, that could apply 20 years from now, too. Uh, if my mom didn't pass away for another 20 years and I just lived with her the entire time. I mean, that same that same feeling I had would have still been true. So it's not like I had some prophetic vision, but it is interesting how this fits with that sort of equation I was trying to figure out. Um, but, uh, but a part of me does feel like, you know, all of this was very purposeful. It was... You know, there was some intention to it that I wasn't even aware of at the time where moving back in with her was really the perfect close to our time together. And that opens up the question of, is this our final time together? And beyond the feeling of having her in me both as some sort of spirit as well as just her influence, you know, because the influence is a large part too. This person raised me and taught me. So if nothing else, that influence is there and the DNA is there and there's things like that. You can get very like scientific about it. You can get very material about it, but there's both a material and an immaterial side to how I see that. Uh, But it's, you know, I, I look at that situation and I'm like, you know, we were very close and it felt like you know, for some reason I stayed close to her, even though I'm a very independent person, sometimes too much. I stayed very close to her and I ended up moving back in with her a little over a year ago. And 
all of that seemed to be somehow in preparation for this. And it has opened the question, though, it's where it's like, because it feels like, you know, if, if souls travel in packs, this certainly isn't the first time that my mom and I were part of the same soul pack. Um, but it does open the question of, is this, is there going to be another? And I was talking to a close family member who is a very devout Christian, and I really appreciate his insight. And we were talking about um, some older family members who passed on a couple years ago. And, you know, the idea of just, you know, seeing people again in heaven. And that's a very powerful idea, you know, the idea of seeing your loved ones again in heaven. And it's not completely unrelated to this. You know, it's not completely unrelated. And it's like people have different beliefs, and you can't dismiss them because there's a difference. And I don't entirely know what I believe, but what he said really made me think, you know, the idea of seeing someone again in heaven. And I don't necessarily feel like, you know, heaven is going to be the exact place where I see my mom. But I also don't know... I don't know that we're going to see each other again. And that's an interesting thing to consider because I could tell myself just for comfort that it's only a matter of time before we reconnect in another life or in heaven or or something. And I don't feel like that idea is just comfort. I think there's a reason why people believe those things, and so many people do. Smart people, discerning people. I think there's a reason why so many people think that way beyond just comfort. So I'm not saying that at all. But for me personally, I have had to consider some of this. And with the way that my mom lived her life and what I saw of her right up until the end, it's hard to imagine her being reborn. It's hard for her to imagine having more stuff to work out in another lifetime, if that's what you believe, you know, because there's certain beliefs where it's like you're capable of attaining Buddhahood in this lifetime and therefore liberating yourself in this lifetime. And there's other beliefs that say that's a process you have to repeat over and over again through multiple lifetimes. And even then, you're lucky if you can attain that sort of liberation. But it's very hard for me. And this isn't me putting my mom on a pedestal. This isn't me, again, trying to find comfort. Because actually, it's not that comfortable for me to think this. It does make me a little uncomfortable to think that, you know, it's hard for me to imagine my mom not achieving liberation based on what I saw of her right up until the end, what I know of her, the wisdom that she just carried with her naturally. And she didn't have to reach too far for it. She didn't have to reach far at all to be kind and generous. She didn't have to reach far to be someone with a general sense of positive well-being and peace and everything that she took in, she gave right back out. And because of that, it's, just, it's very difficult for me to imagine that if anybody is truly capable of achieving liberation in this lifetime or through a series of lifetimes, you know, if that's, you know, she did believe in some sort of reincarnation and maybe this is, you know, maybe this was a later stage or the final stage for her because it's hard for me to imagine you know, it's hard for me to imagine her doing better than she did because I view her life as such a success. And that's not to say it was a perfection, whatever that is, um, but I do see her life as such a success and I don't feel like I have blinders on. 
I don't feel like I'm putting her on a pedestal or trying to sanctify her uh, or call her Saint Mom or anything like that. Uh, I do feel, though, that there, there, I can't imagine a human being doing anything different in their lifetime. And if that's the case, I, I can't imagine them having to do more or less or anything else to achieve some form of soul liberation and not just repeat, you know, not live in Groundhog Day for souls. Uh, soul Hog Day, whatever dumb joke I shouldn't make. It's hard for me to imagine that. And, uh, and it makes me think about myself. And as someone who doesn't think in terms of karma, it, who doesn't think in those terms, it's interesting to think about that for myself as well. And uh, there's a part of me that loves the idea of my mom's soul and my soul having gone through different iterations and both of us achieving that liberation in this lifetime. And, you know, I, I have, you know, many years potentially left to live. And, you know, we all have kinks in our system. I think our souls all get twisted up. And... I, you know, I do feel like I've been able to untwist it a bit, and I'm going to continue to to practice and live in a way that I think neutralizes or illuminates whatever it is I consider a soul, whatever that sensation is. Uh, and liberation, you know, isn't a—liberation is a decent goal, you know? I feel like soul liberation is a decent goal, and it's not something that I'm going to focus on. It's not, I'm not going to think in those terms. I think there's a reason why I've avoided thinking about karma and reincarnation, and even though it's in a lot of what I read and take in, I think there's a reason why it's not a priority for me to think about, because I don't want to get distracted. I don't want to turn my, I don't want to spin my wheels. I just want to use my turn signal. Give me a good old turn signal and and send me on my way. Give me a give me a car with a working turn signal, and just set me down on that highway. That's you know, that'd be liberating. Make sure that you know my lights work because that's the other thing is you want your lights to work. You want people to know when you're stopping, when you're hitting the brakes. You want your red lights in back and your uh, yellow white lights in front to work you want people to be able to see your headlights you don't want to have your brights on all the time uh, a working turn signal some working headlights some working brake lights no flat tires that's paradise you know because it's not just good for you it's good for everybody else on the road too This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the 
sun reveals her hills and plains. I see a land where children can run free. 